Welcome to the China in the World podcast, a series of discussions examining China's foreign policy and shifting engagement with the world. The China in the World podcast is brought to you by Carnegie China and hosted by me, Paul Hanley. Welcome back to Carnegie China's China in the World podcast. I'm delighted today to welcome Sharon Xia to discuss ICS Yusof Ishak Institute's 2023 State of Southeast Asia Survey. Sharon Xia is a senior fellow and coordinator of both the ASEAN Studies Center and Climate Change in Southeast Asia program at the ICS Yusof Ishak Institute. She's also the lead author of the State of Southeast Asia Survey Report, which we'll discuss today, and the Southeast Asia Climate Outlook Survey. Prior to academia, Sharon spent 15 years in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and the National Environmental Agency of Singapore. Her research interests include ASEAN, multilateralism, rule of law, and climate change. 2018, she graduated with a master in public in international law from the University of Melbourne, and is a co is also co-editor of 50 Years of ASEAN in Singapore, and editor of Building a New Legal Order for the Oceans for Tommy Co. Sharon, it was、uh, nice to meet you in person、uh, recently at the recent、uh, ICS workshop on the war in Ukraine, and thank you so much for joining our podcast today. Thank you for having me on, Paul. I've enjoyed、uh, reading the State of Southeast Asia survey over the years、uh, to gain insights into regional perspectives, regional views、um, on the outlook for the、uh, Southeast Asia. Local developments and even the impact on U.S.-China rivalry, which is where I spend most of my time looking at.、Um, to start off, I wonder if you could just give our listeners, because our listeners are,、uh, as we've discussed before, before starting the podcast, our our listeners come from an international um, uh, base uh, with our, you know, several Carnegie Global Centers around the world. And it would be good for you to just explain a little bit about the state of the Southeast Asia survey. You know, when was it started? What was the objective?、Mm. Who are the respondents? And what's you know what's the aim of the survey in your view?、Mm. Most certainly, Paul.、Um, this survey was started in 2019, and so this year is the fifth year that we are doing the survey. And really, the aim is to try to give a snapshot of the prevailing attitudes、uh, towards, you know, some of the international affairs that's happening in this neighborhood, and、uh, how Southeast Asians view、um, their dialogue partners and how dialogue partners have engaged with the region over the past year.、Um, of course, it's not meant to be a definitive view of the issues、uh, in the region, but. It gives you an idea of how people think about this, and it's also a survey of a rather thin segment of the population. These are people we call、uh, opinion leaders or policymakers, people who are in a position to inform or influence policy.、Um, we offer this、uh, survey to、uh, five affiliation groups: opinion leaders, policymakers, business and finance sector people, academia, CSOs, and and so on. And in this year's survey, we've pulled a thousand three hundred and eight respondents from all ten ASEAN member states. We have not included Timor Leste;、um, it's still not a member of ASEAN,、um, but we get respondents from across the different age groups as well. well that's terrific, and you know, one of the things I've learned in、uh, 
being here in in Singapore over the last year and a half, ASEAN is a is 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 a is a block, but of course, as you say, there's ten countries and and there's very different and unique perspectives in in each of those uh, countries. So this seems like quite a challenging effort. So my hats off to you and your team for for pulling something like this off. You know, um, this year's uh, survey. It could have, I mean, it seems like it could have been unique for a number of reasons, not least of which is, you know, the world seems to be recovering to a large degree from COVID-19, from the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got uh, global inflation as an issue, a lot of concern about food and energy security. Of course, mm-hmm. the outbreak of uh, the war in Ukraine in February uh, last year, 2022. So w- I want to just ask, uh, what were the kind of the key findings in this year's survey that may have differed uh, to previous years, given those unique set of issues that uh, we've been dealing with over the last year. In other words, you know, what what findings surprised you the most in this year's surveys and may have been different than previous surveys? Yeah, thanks, Paul, for that. Um, this year, I think the really top of mind issues for our respondents are are bread and butter issues. And you will see in the survey that uh, the top concerns uh, for Southeast Asia is actually unemployment and economic recession. Because when we took the survey last year, starting in November till the end of the year, the headlines were mostly about, you know, inflationary pressures being sustained, the food and energy security issues that were triggered by the um, Russia-Ukraine war. And these are some of the things that came up top of mind. Whereas uh, in the past two years, the threat of COVID-19 to health was the top concern. What really surprised me in this year's survey was that um, even though, um, you know, the region has always cast an eye on China and an eye on the US, and uh, a lot of these issues tend to come in this prism of uh, US-China um, rivalry. And we've always polled our respondents on how they feel towards China's economic and political influence. And one of the findings that we found, uh, was, I found surprising was that even though the worry over China's influence has always been present, actually that level of concern has decreased this year. Whereas mm. in the past, it has always increased. Uh, so mm. that shows um, that maybe the needle is moving and uh, where people had been wary, they are more a little bit more embracing of the mm-hmm. kind of political influence that China has in this region. Um, the second mm-hmm. finding that was interesting to me was that the trust perceptions of India, uh, which has been very, very low over the past years, has suddenly increased. So India is, is geopolitically you know, seen as a bit of a, a laggard in this region, but it suddenly emerged as the region's third choice for a hedging partner and overtaking Australia uh, for the first time. And Australia has always been active in this region and even more so in the past few years um, as we begin to talk about the concept of an Indo-Pacific and, and clearly mm. Australia is a big player there. So th- this is this is a bit of a surprise for me. Third choice uh, for a hedging partner behind who's in number one and number two? EU and Japan. Uh-huh. Those are the traditional uh, favorite choices for Southeast Asia. Interesting. It hasn't changed for the last four years. Very interesting. 
Well, I do want to uh, talk to you more about the U.S.-China rivalry, and you you, you mentioned uh, the changes in with regard to China in the survey, and we can uh, talk about that a little bit further down. But um, I wanted to get a sense of you know what the survey brought out in terms of uh, the top challenges facing mm-hmm. Southeast Asia. You know, it's a rapidly changing region. Um, many you know see it having a sort of a bright socioeconomic future, but at mm. the same time, um, number of challenges in the near term. You've mentioned uh, some of those. You've got climate and environmental insecurity, geopolitical mm. tensions, humanitarian crisis in Myanmar. What do the survey respondents see as the top challenges facing mm. South Asia? And do you expect these challenges to shift um, going forward as COVID becomes less of an issue uh, for many governments uh, in the region? Yeah, I think COVID is pretty much receded to the back of our minds by now, Paul. Uh, in Asia, thing. yeah, it's a good thing, right? I mean, yeah. we're pretty yeah. much back to to normalcy with uh, face-to-face meetings, travel, the diplomats are meeting each other. Um, we're carrying out our bilateral visits and holding multilateral meetings in person. That's all good. Um, So as I mentioned earlier, unemployment and economic recession was top choice. But at second rank, which is very interesting, was the idea that social economic uh, income gaps, uh, income disparity is becoming a a big concern. And I think a large part of that has to do with the fact that the region suffered through three years of uh, basically an economic shutdown. And there are now these issues and people were losing their jobs and their livelihoods. Now people are coming back up again um, but that's left a gulf you know between the the haves and the have-nots and that's a big problem for the governments in the region and at tight at this uh, second place ranking is the the concerns with increased military tensions in the region specifically in relation to the tensions over Taiwan and the yeah. DPRK's um, you know, uh, defense moves let's say, Mm. uh, the constant firing of ballistic missiles. In fact, another one had been fired yesterday, I saw on the news and in in response to the Japan-Korea summit. Um, So these issues are really coming to the fore. And I think the concerns over Taiwan was really triggered, you know, by that high-profile visit by the former U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi to the island. And that Mm -hmm. resulted in a blockade around the island. And that this caused, uh, you know, shivers running down spines here in in the region. And it's not something that we want to see repeated. Um, The third rank concern is climate change, as you mentioned. And this has always been a uh, a constant. In a separate climate survey that I do as well for for the Institute, these concerns are elevated across the region, especially for the Philippines and Vietnam, because they tend to bear the brunt of most of the typhoons and cyclones that's coming this way. Um, so I would say, yeah, as countries get back to normalcy and as we encounter, and unless we encounter a new variant or a different type of outbreak, I think these types of challenges will continue to be top of mind. And these challenges are very, very linked to the war in Ukraine. Yes. And, um, you know, delighted to hear you say, you know, moving beyond COVID, that's music to everyone's ears. But these issues, unemployment, economic recession, income disparity, military tension, climate change, these are, you know, these are significant challenges. And as you say, 
the war in Ukraine has implications for for many of those. Um, I do want to shift uh, gears a bit to ASEAN as an institution, as an organization, because I know this is something the survey looks at as well. You know, it's often given uh, credit for its ability to promote stability in Southeast Asia through consultation um, and dialogue. But at the same time, um, ASEAN as an institution does as well face criticism for being too slow sometimes to form consensus, to act on international challenges in a timely manner or an effective manner. And I think Myanmar would be a good example there. Um, what are the top three concerns that regional company countries um, from your survey have about ASEAN as an institution? And how do you expect the chairmanship uh, led by Indonesia this year to, to have uh, impact these concerns, you know, for better or worse? Yeah, we actually started the survey because we wanted to know how our community viewed ASEAN. And sad to say, ASEAN is not viewed in very positive light, even by um, the, those of us who are proponents and champions of ASEAN. Sometimes ASEAN does frustrate us to a great extent. Mm -hmm. And the biggest complaint in the survey this year is that ASEAN is slow and ineffective. It is seen as a laggard in responding to crises, including internal ones like Myanmar, and in responding to global problems, uh, such as the Ukraine war. Um, and uh, it, it does not, the region does not think that ASEAN can cope with these developments. And as you know, Paul, you know, these developments happen at breakneck speed now. It almost yeah. seems that after COVID, everything's just compressed into very short timelines. And the way ASEAN has responded or not responded in a timely manner worries people that it will become irrelevant in the new world order. The mm. second concern that we have is, um, or rather our respondents have, is that the members of ASEAN may become proxies for major powers and that the region become uh, an arena for competition. Um, and and that is not unwarranted because there has been you know certain members leaning more towards one side or or rather than the other. Uh, the third concern is um, with ASEAN's own disunity, and that's becoming a little bit more pronounced now over particular issues like Myanmar, where they can't seem to come to an agreement as to how to implement uh, the five point consensus. Now, Indonesia, um, we we started the year with uh, great hopes because Indonesia is a de facto leader of ASEAN, biggest country, biggest economy, and of course, um, you know, holds certain values that ASEAN uh, champions. Um, Indonesia, I I was I see it will try to bridge that divide, the the disunited positions within ASEAN. And I see that President uh, Jokowi, for instance, was here in town yesterday, uh, had a great meeting with Prime Minister Lee. Um, I think he's going to be making more of these outreach to the different mm. ASEAN member states to try to find common ground and consensus. Um, mm. Indonesia as well cares for ASEAN and the ASEAN Secretariat is based in Jakarta, of course, as you know. Right. And they've always uh, been one of the chairs that would take an opportunity to try to strengthen ASEAN's institutional capacities. So I think that uh, would be 
uh, something that's good for the secretariat to in, improve uh, processes, capacities to try to um, make ASEAN, you know, uh, respond a little faster and and put out uh, better responses in that regard. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, ASEAN's gotten good credit for the their role in hosting the G20 um, last mm. year, and so maybe they can they can take some of that momentum uh, mm. into the. ASEAN chairmanship and uh, help to improve the capacity of the institution. And you've highlighted, you know, some real concerns about relevance going forward and, you know, members of ASEAN becoming proxies, you know, the geopolitical context with which ASEAN has to operate um, and, and as a region of, of competition between major powers. Um, and of course, the, the disunity that uh, we see at times, which then has an impact on the degree to which it can be effective. And these are considerable challenges. I want to yes, shift that's to right. China rivalry. Um, you mentioned China in the survey and the changes uh, that uh, you saw this year. U.S.-China rivalry um, as part of that geopolitical major power competition aspect is becoming a significant challenge here in the region. You've referred to that a number of times. I noted in the survey, in line with the trend from previous surveys, uh, that respondents continue to favor enhancing ASEAN's resilience and unity in order to fend off pressure from the two major powers. And that is um, a, in, in contrast to other options like choosing sides, which we hear mm -hmm. quite loudly. Uh, the region is not interested in choosing sides between the United States and China or seeking third parties to broaden its strategic space. So apart from promoting economic multilateralism, such as through the Regional Comprehensive Economic Pro, uh, Program, RCEP, what are some other ways the, through which ASEAN could enhance resilience and unity in this regard? Yes. So you're right. We asked the question, if ASEAN were caught in a crossfire between Beijing and Washington, how should ASEAN respond, right? And consistently over the past four years that we've asked this question, um, the choice has always been that we should enhance our own resilience and unity. And I think to do that, the first order of the day is to bridge um, the, the divide of opinions, whether it's real or perceived division of opinions, uh, we have to, to breach it and to make sure that ASEAN comes up with at least a facade of unity. And mm. amongst the many issues, the one that I mentioned earlier was Myanmar. How do you approach Myanmar? How do you ensure that? How do you get everyone uh, to the table to begin discussions? How do you start talking about the talks? Think that's important. Um, so that's the in internal one. And the other is when issues come up, Ukraine, Taiwan, these issues need to be discussed. I think uh, as Bilahari Kalsikan said in a workshop, you know, we we have to have this kind of heart-to-heart -heart talk among the leaders and mm. among uh, the policymakers and, and to think about the, the kind of responses that ASEAN can come to. Another way is to increase the regional economic integration uh, process. I think the pandemic has taken attention of regional economic integration projects because governments have become a little bit more preoccupied with recovering um, yeah. from the pandemic. That's understandable. But also, as I mentioned, the pandemic accelerated so many things, right, including uh, digitalization, 
And now new areas are coming up, you know, um, such as green transition. So these issues will come up and take the mind share of economic integration. But we mustn't uh, take our eyes off the price. We we want to get to an integrated market of 650 million people, and that's what we need to work towards. So keep yeah. the noses to the grind, keep at it, especially with a potential new member coming on board, Timor-Leste. So the work mm. of integrating Timor-Leste into ASEAN economically and politically will become even more important. And I think that uh, in this survey, we also asked the question about the admission of Timor. And to my surprise, uh, there's a sense of optimism that integrating Timor will, will in fact help ASEAN and could in fact um, enhance ASEAN's uh, resilience and unity rather than and to divide it. Yeah. Mm, that's interesting. Um, my friend Robin Hu now is the, is the non-resident ambassador there. And I'll make sure that he hears this uh, podcast because he'd be very interested in those, in those findings, um, I'm sure. Um, you wrote a uh, a p or a contribution to Chinaphile recently, Asia Society's Chinaphile, and in that piece you mentioned that ASEAN leaders are unlikely to subscribe to China's new global security initiative and global development initi- initiative, um, especially if it leads to a loss of autonomy and independence for their own foreign policy priorities. So moving beyond the survey a little bit, I did want to uh, ask you about this because I found it interesting. And I, we focus quite a bit at Carnegie China on these China-related issues, Global Security Initiative, Global Development Initiative, now the Global Civiliz- Civilization Initiative, number of initiatives coming out here proposed by the Chinese leadership to offer Chinese solutions mm-hmm. to global security and development uh, and other issues. Um, and so in... In a light of your article, your contribution to China file, what do you think China needs to do to convince ASEAN countries to, you know, join these initiatives or to support these initiatives, or at least not push back on these initiatives? And how will these initiatives impact the power balance, in your view, between between the U.S. and China, um, if you know they were to be successful? I think for this region, anything that would force them to take a side is is not welcome. So yeah. be it um, the US, be it China coming knocking on the doors to ask uh, the region to you know take their offerings, uh, that response will be the same. And mm-hmm. um, we saw this when you know um, when AUKUS was announced two years mm-hmm. ago, was it? Um, the reception was not that great. It was cold, in fact. Um, and it was seen as a way to, you know, force sides. In the mm. same way, um, the Global Security Initiative, it's been met, I would say, with kind of a polite uh, reception. Um, mm-hmm. Of course, yeah, I think the leaders will be quite wary that um, they might have to trade in something uh, in order to get Chinese uh, security guarantees. And when the question is, what would that trade be? Um, right. The fear has always been, and it's also shown up in parts of the survey that, you know, tools that are used to coerce or to cause a loss of autonomy and independence um, are always there. So China needs to address this. Um, and, you know, despite what China has done in the region for decades, building infrastructure, bringing the BRI here, 
I, I think that the China soft power is still relatively low. And this is something that, you know, perhaps uh, Chinese policymakers can, you know, give a think about how to improve that. Um, mm -hmm. Because, yeah, all of that hard infrastructure, all of the, you know, benefits hasn't really translated, right, to an equal mm -hmm. increase in soft power. Um, yeah. So, that's uh, I think how will it impact the power balance I think it will continue to be in this state of you know push and pull the tensions the dynamics would just keep evolving yeah. um, and it will make it easier so I think that that tight rope that ASEAN has to walk is only going to get shorter mm. yeah well these are tremendous uh, helpful helpful tremendously helpful perspectives um and your insights into you know the region's um views and perspectives on these is is really terrific um i wanted to ask one more question moving uh, really moving far from the survey now mm -hmm. but while i have you here and you have such tremendous insight into regional perspectives just want to bring up one recent incident between the us and get a sense from you how it was viewed in the region. And that was the recent uh, spy balloon incident in February, <laughs> which you which you know, I mean, it, it created you know considerable tension and some damage in US-China relations, um, at least here in the near term. Um, and it's, you know, China's begun to to escalate its anti-American rhetoric now with unprecedented language labeling the US as the as a culprit for containing and suppressing China's development. Um, and after the incursion of the Chinese aircraft into U.S. airspace, the Secretary of State in the U.S. postponed his trip to China in early February. What is your general sense? And I know you didn't cover this, obviously, in the Southeast Asia survey, but what's your general sense of how countries in Southeast Asia view the balloon incident and its impact on, on U.S.-China relations? On, on one level, <laughs> the balloon incident you know, puts a, a smile on some people's faces. Mm. But on another level, it is very worrying. And I would say in Southeast Asia, the way we see Americans respond to it, it betrays something uh, of the American psyche. And there's this kind of you know, almost falling, the media was falling over themselves. Uh, to report about the incident. And the responses coming out of DC was a, sometimes bordering on maybe hysterical. Uh, on the other hand, when we looked at the Chinese response, they, it appeared quite measured. Um, you may not agree with me, but it wasn't mm. no, made in the same usual tone, not a pitch higher, not a pitch lower. Mm. Um, so on the long term, in the long term, you know what keeps policymakers awake at night, Paul. It is mm. the fact is the idea that there could be an accidental, unintentional right. conflict. And this might this is an incident that's like a precursor. I we yeah. we haven't I, I don't know the the ins and outs of this incident. So I, I won't comment on that. But this is um shows us that anything can happen uh in the air, out at sea, you know, in the South China Sea. If if anything accidental happens, then it could spark um, yeah. a conflict. And what's worrying is that there are no open communication lines between the two countries. We would really like to see both sides um, 
speak to each other, have closer coordination and communication. And because misunderstandings just lead to even more misunderstandings. And that's not healthy. And I've said this before, and I'll say it again, the US-China relationship is the most important bilateral relationship in the world right now. It's not Russia-Ukraine, it's not Russia-China, it's US-China. And whatever happens in that relationship is going to impact the rest of the world. And with the immediate vicinity being Southeast Asia. Yeah, I mean, your point that it's an important relationship for the world, but in particular for this uh, region here, um, you know, the most unfortunate, I think, fallout of the spy balloon, you know, one was that Secretary Blinken did not, was not able to travel to China. Um, I think both sides were looking forward to that visit to try Mm -hmm. to put some stability in the relationship in advance of what I think will be a difficult year um, for a variety of reasons. Yes, and we hope that visit can still carry on, can still take place. Maybe hard. Uh, That may be hard. But I think we have, um, uh, U.S. will be hosting APEC in the fall. Um, And that will be an opportunity um, for President Xi to travel there. I think Mm -hmm. President Xi would want to go to APEC in San Francisco. I think President Biden will want to have him there. Um, And that may be a forcing function for the two sides to to find some way to put the relationship on a little bit more of a stable footing. The other unfortunate aspect of the balloon is, you know, uh, the debate on on U.S.-China and our China policy um, has been quite intense in Washington, D.C. and in policy circles. Um, And our Lao Baixing, our, you know, everyday Americans across the country hear it, but they don't have a sort of a concrete feel for it. And I think the one real downside of the balloon is that, uh, you know, you had Americans who could look up and and see a Chinese spy balloon, and that makes it real, the China threat real. And so I understand your point about it looked at times like the reaction was hysterical, but it was, I think, a concrete example for Americans to take away and in 2019, I understand that a foreign spy balloon flew into China's national airspace as well. There's apparently a documentary mm-hmm. film on it. Mm-hmm. And the Chinese reaction was they sent a PLA Air Force uh, jet into the into the air uh, and mm-hmm. shot it down and gave yeah. the pilot an award for protecting China's national sovereignty. So in a sense, the Chinese reaction to the similar incident in China was very much like the reaction mm-hmm. in the U.S., but yet the narratives now coming out of both capitals are very, very different. Uh, Chinese mm-hmm. sides, the U.S. overreacted um, when, in fact, the Chinese responded in a similar way. So it's really unfortunate. Um, and, uh, you know, we'll we'll see what happens going forward. Um, but I hear what you're saying is the region is concerned about mm-hmm. the state of the relationship. And as you say, the potential for you know, some inadvertent potentially clash or mm. uh, incident um, and and the escalation of that mm. uh, being difficult to manage and the impact, yeah. the implications for the region are considerate. Yeah, I think the risks are very high now. Um, it's been elevated since February 2022 um, when the invasion of Ukraine took place and that, that you know, the divide is, is real. And I think it's understandable, of course, every country will 
respond in the way it has to respond. But oh, privately, I suppose there can be some communication, you know, between the two sides. Um, and doing certain things away from the spotlight or saying certain things away from the spotlight might be helpful to kind of, you know, cool down the temperatures, the tensions. So that's why in, in this regard, yeah, whatever that both sides can do to, to try to just borrow your catchphrase, yeah. you know, put the guardrails back yeah. <laughs> in the relationship yeah. will, will be tremendously helpful and yeah, make people sleep a little better here in the region. Well, thank you for sharing your 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 perspectives on U.S. China. I know that's outside of the context of the Southeast Asia uh, survey, um, but uh, but I very much appreciate it, and I appreciate your thoughts and and explaining the state of the Southeast Asia survey and some of the findings this year. Very insightful. Um, very much appreciate it, and uh, we look forward to hopefully having you on again next year when the survey comes out and continuing the conversation. So thank you very much for joining the China in the World podcast, Sharon. And we thank hope you, to have Paul. you again soon. Thank you. Yes, thank you so much for having me on. I enjoyed myself. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the China in the World podcast. For more episodes and research, please go to carnegieendowment.org. This episode was produced by Nathaniel Schur with assistance from Wang Yuan Hong and Michael Malinconi. The music was composed by Spencer Barnett.